You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 188, Karate. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flat. Today is August 27th, 2020, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about karate. Now, as you know, I like to keep my show notes stored on my Commodore 64, so while I load that file into memory, that'll give us a few minutes to chat on this week's Loading Time. Loading Time. Loading Time. Loading Time. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Uh, a couple of show bits of information. The first thing I wanted to tell everyone, if you are not uh, supporting the show on Patreon, then I forgive you. No. <laughs> That's not what I was going to say. Uh, what I was going to say is that um, the uh, Boat and Aaron from the uh, Amigos podcast and who have... Uh, uh, allowed me to piggyback uh, Sprite Castle onto their podcast network, have also allowed me to add my Patreon supporters to their Discord server. And so they've actually created a Sprite Castle channel for me and for everybody that uh, loves Sprite Castle. So if you're already following what's going on on Patreon, you may have seen that added as a reward. So that was pretty cool. Um, and the other thing, again, this is uh, Sprite Castle news, not really, you don't know, flat news, but um, I've started getting back into video recording. Now, video recording, I dabbled in with Sprite Castle a long time ago, and I don't know that it was very good, but it seems like the technology is even better. Um, it's easier to get everything working, and uh, long story short, I've started uploading some Sprite Castle Plays videos, and those are on uh, YouTube under Amigos Retro Gaming. So if you check their channel, there's a playlist called Sprite Castle Plays. So uh, in between Sprite Castle Weeks, if you want to go check those out, that will give you something to do. Uh, man, it was a busy week last week. Uh, I had my birthday. I turned 47, which is crazy to me. I had my 25th anniversary, which is also crazy. And, uh, we also bought a new car. So it was a very hectic, crunched together week. Uh, you know, it's funny the older I get, like mentally there are parts of me that still, feel like I'm in my twenties. Um, I told my wife one time, like if we weren't married, I would have Motley Crue and Metallica posters hanging on the wall. <laughs> my wife's the classy one of the two of us. Uh, I would just have retro computers all spread out throughout the house. She's the one that uh, really makes me corral my things into a small area, which is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, uh, then there are other parts of me, the older I get, that I do feel old about. Sometimes I feel old about uh, when I hear new music, I feel old. Um, when I lay down on the floor to do something and try to get up, I feel old. 
<laughs> I haven't uh, taken as good a care of my body as I should have. I'm trying to rectify that at the moment, but it's always a, a constant struggle. But it's it's very strange. Like when I hear the number 47, we were actually doing the math, and um, my my parents were both 47 when my wife and I got married. So I think of like being the age I am now and seeing my kids get married um, it's always funny, right? It's all about perspective. Like when I was a kid, I mean, my parents, even at my wedding, my parents seemed, uh, you know, like old, mature people. I don't feel like an old, mature person. I'm wearing a R2-D2 t-shirt and a pair of cargo shorts um, and some high tops and a hat. So, uh, I, yeah, I don't feel – at 47, I don't feel the way that I felt like when I was younger how my parents must have felt when they were this age. It's – I don't know. You know what? I take every year as a blessing. I'm I'm so grateful for all the things that I have and and for all the people in my life and uh my job and and that I'm able right now especially through the the current pandemic to have the um uh gosh just the opportunity to not have to worry about you know, being able to put food on our plates and not not being able or not, you know, worried about paying our bills. Uh, and, and literally having enough free time to sit down and, and podcast once a week. So, uh, you know, 47, when I was a kid, I thought I would never make it to 30 or 40. Like th- I just didn't even think what those ages would be like. And now that I'm here, I don't know. It's, um, as my dad always says, it beats the alternative. So, <laughs> so here we are. Um, and then we had, uh, my anniversary. Like I said, we had our 25th wedding anniversary. We had planned to go on a cruise to uh, Alaska. We went on a cruise to Alaska several years ago, and we were looking forward to going back and doing some different things. But, of course, the cruises are all canceled. And uh, so instead, my wife found a cave that has been turned into a luxury resort in, gosh, it's it's in the middle of Arkansas. I want to say it's... Uh, is it Parthenon or Pantheon? I don't remember, but it was uh, uh, Beckham Cave, and it's a four-room lodge. You could actually sleep about 15 or 16 people inside this cave, uh, the uh, upstairs uh, upstairs in the cave. So, th- I mean, literally, this is a cave. It's on the side of, a, uh, of a, a mountain in the middle of Arkansas, and you go inside, and the floors are mostly concrete. Well, the floors are all either rock or concrete. And all the walls inside are, uh, it's an active cave. So there are active, uh, stalag, I got called out on this, stalactites and stalagmites. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, they stick tight, right? Uh, stalagmites. I don't know. I'm gonna, it'll, somebody will correct me. I have no doubt. Um, but, uh, it is an active cave. I mean, there are parts of the cave where there's water dripping in and they've done a pretty good job of sealing, uh, the, the sleeping areas and the bathroom areas. There is, uh, modern toilet areas, modern restroom facilities. There's in the master bedroom, there was a shower head that came out of like right in between, uh, you know, the cave. It was like taking a shower in a cave almost. It was just really, really cool. It was also really, really expensive. And, uh, uh, it's definitely not something I doubt it's anything we would ever do again, but it was kind of like, well, we got the money back from our cruise. Uh, and it was for our anniversary. So we, we splurged a little bit, but it was, it was very cool. Not recommended if you're claustrophobic, <laughs> The bedroom uh, we were in was far enough back up in the cave area where if the 
lights had gone out or electricity had gone out, you would be in pitch black in the middle of a cave. So, I mean, obviously we had our phones uh, with us for flashlights, you know, but uh, lots of cool little nooks and crannies to explore. It's really, really unique experience. In fact, um, I think I did. Yeah, I did upload a video walkthrough of the cave. If you want to go to YouTube on my channel, it's just forward slash Rob O'Hara. There should be a clip there for the Beckham cave walkthrough and you can see what the cave actually looked like. But that was, uh, that was really cool. So yeah, a bit of a, a busy week for me last week, but I'm glad to uh, be back here on the mic talking to you, everyone. Uh, I bought, uh, one thing. I bought a little device, a toy, if you will, which, um, I thought it was interesting. I was so I have the workshop in my backyard and I have Ethernet run out there and I have a, a long Ethernet run. I I've got a uh, what I call I think I just call it a smart hub. It's in the, the front uh closet in the coat closet. I have a server there and I have a switch there and, and all my Ethernet that runs throughout the house all runs to this area. And I have uh there was a run when they built the house that goes all the way out to the cable box. There's an Ethernet drop that goes all the way out there. So I ran uh, an Ethernet jack from there along the uh, uh, side of the house, and then there's a, a drop that goes under the driveway, and it, and it runs out to the, the workshop. So I can – my uh, a little a Android box that I stream movies with and, and other stuff like that, I could plug into a, a physical switch. So I'm not trying to get wireless all the way out there, but there are things that I need wireless for out there. For example, I bought these smart light bulbs. They're LED light bulbs and you can change the colors. And I thought that would be cool in the, the movie room, but they require Wi-Fi, and I just can't get a strong enough signal out there to program them. So uh, I was trying to figure out a way to set up a wireless extender out there, you know, like a, a repeater. And a lot of the, the solutions I found were Wi-Fi to Wi-Fi. So you would, you know, like a, I think almost like a Google Mesh or something. But I couldn't get Wi-Fi out there. So um, I was I was looking at building a, a custom Raspberry Pi solution. And I was going to have to buy another Raspberry Pi. So, you know, in my head I go, oh, well, Raspberry Pi is $35. But that's just for a Pi. That's not for a – with a – a power supply and an SD card and whatever. So, yeah, I mean, you're closer to 70 for a, a entry level package, but I found this thing online called a GL iNet. Uh, and it is, uh, I found it on Amazon and it says it is a portable travel router, mobile hotspot, Wi-Fi repeater bridge, rage extender, Range, I should say range, not a rage extender. That's if it doesn't work. It is a rage extender. Um, and it supports open VPN. Uh, so what this thing is, it's this tiny little device and you plug it in. It has all different kinds of modes it operates in. First of all, I should say it's $20. So that was, I mean, cheaper than I could roll my own pie, you know, and then I'm not trying to support something constantly. It's this little device. You can, uh, and the default mode, you plug it into an Ethernet jack and plug it into power. It uses a USB, you know, adapter for power. Plug it in and, uh, it's ready to go. In fact, it had its own DHCP server built in. I guess it's running OpenWRT. Um, so it has a DHCP server set up and, and it was like 192, 168, 8 dot whatever. So it doesn't conflict with what I'm running here in the house, but I can see all my devices. And uh, it bridges right out to the internet. I mean, it was literally 
the way that I, with no configuration because I didn't need to change anything, it was a 10 second setup. I just changed the name and changed the, the uh, admin password and the Wi-Fi password. And that's all I had to do. But there are, and it does some other things like it does, um, it has a USB port, so you could use it for phone tethering. If your your phone doesn't support tethering, you could plug your phone into this, and then other devices could tether off your phone. Um, it does have VPN that you could set up, uh, and also a firewall. So one of the the um, scenarios on Amazon is if you wanted to take this with you to a hotel, and then you would connect, you connect this device to the hotel's internet, whether it's wired or, or Wi-Fi, and then your devices connect to this. So you're protected from their internet, you know, with a, the firewall or, or routing everything through a VPN. I just thought I was really amazed that you could get this for $20. I've been looking at much more expensive uh, solutions, and it seems to work great. I hooked it up yesterday, and I got my my uh, LED smart light bulbs all hooked up, and, and it's... um. It's working great. The only drawback, and this would just be for certain scenarios, I guess, but it only supports uh, 2.4 wireless, so it doesn't do 5. I believe it's gigahertz. Um, For me, 2.4 was good enough. I'm not doing anything that needs super speed on that. I don't know what kind of speed smart light bulbs (laughs) need to operate, but I don't don't think it's that much, so they... uh, they seem to work just fine. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy with that. That's a That was a fun little purchase. Uh, and speaking of Amazon purchases, I saw today that the 64, the full-size Commodore 64, has now been opened up for pre-orders on Amazon for U.S. customers. Now, I did see that Canadians were having trouble reserving or pre-ordering it, but they're trying to work through that problem right now. But uh, if you'll recall, the V64 is uh, essentially uh, running WinVice, but it does have, uh, you know, it's in the form factor of a Commodore 64, and this is the full-size version. So I was on the fence about buying it. You know, when I talk, sometimes my, my brain and my heart are on two different uh, wavelengths, I suppose. And so, you know, for my, my brain, I thought I have so many devices here that I can play Commodore 64 games on. I, everything from a real 64 to Raspberry Pis running 64 and, uh, a mist and, and several other things. So I'd kind of talked to myself out of buying it. And the minute this went up for presale, I immediately bought it. So the, the heart, the heart wants what it wants, apparently, when it comes to retro hardware anyway. And so, um, a pre-order cost is $129.99. That does not include, uh, well, if you're Amazon Prime, it's, it includes shipping, but it didn't include tax. So my total came to about $140 with a ship date of uh, early November, I believe November 5th. So if, uh, you know, you've been wanting one of these and you're in North America, you didn't want to import one and you wanted a, a, I, you know, I, I don't think NTSC is necessarily the selling point. I, I think both models can do PAL or NTSC. Um, but, uh, you know, it might be a fun thing to play around with. I'm looking forward to see how the keyboard feels. And I'm looking forward to, uh, obviously, um, you know, having HDMI out. You know, it's 720p, but having HDMI out, that's a, a selling point too. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I will run it through its paces and I'm sure there will be a, an episode of, uh, either Sprite Castle or you don't know Flack where I, where I talk about it. So, 
if you have feedback about this or any episode of this show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore or leave me a message on my podcast hotline, which is area code 405-486-YDKF. This podcast is made possible by my supporters at Patreon. If you'd like to support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. I'd like to give a personal thanks to John Schaller, Eric Strianisi, Matt Nicholson, Dave Zilly, Steve Rasmussen, Patrick Markey, Garrett Allier, Rick Reynolds, Scott Lambert, and Cobra Kai. Thank you guys for supporting the show. And right as I was reading the last name, I see that my notes have fully loaded. So let's get into talking about this week's episode's topic, karate. As I have mentioned before on this show, I grew up in a neighborhood full of athletic boys. The house across the street had four boys. The neighborhood uh, or the neighbor next to me had three boys. And I was, other than why, I was the second youngest of just out of that group of eight. There were lots of other kids that were a year or two older than me. And um, so, you know, the neighbors across the street were a very big sports family. So were the neighbors next door. I was a very big Star Wars kid. I was into video games and home computers and um, dressing up in Halloween costumes and riding my bike around the neighborhood wearing a, a devil mask and red tights. <laughs> uh, I was a pretty goofy kid. I was pretty uh, uh, artistic and creative and all the things uh, as a kid that could get you bullied and beat up. In fact, there was a, a few kids that I would say bullied me. Some were just bullies in general. So there was one kid specifically, I'll just call him Biff, that uh, seemed to target me specifically. And um, I'm sure that my parents saw this. And, and as a parent now, sometimes you know what's going on in your kid's life. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you, you get a feeling of what's going on. Uh, but my dad had a coworker. And this coworker had two sons, and they were both in karate. And he talked to my dad. He said that uh, karate was good self-esteem. It was a good self-esteem builder, I should say. Uh, it was good exercise for kids. It was good for uh, learning discipline. And it was good for learning self-defense. And so he mentioned it to my dad. My dad asked me if I would be interested. And I said, yeah, I think I would. Uh, this was in third grade. So let's see if I was five when kindergarten started, six, seven. So I was probably eight or nine years old when this was happening. I'm sure my dad saw, you know, that I was the type of kid that uh, might get pushed around or picked on and, and he wanted to help me out. Um, the one piece of advice that this guy gave me, uh, my dad's friend, he said, if I were you, I wouldn't tell anybody that you're taking karate because they'll all want to fight you, <laughs> which was really good advice that I didn't always follow. Um, my dad says that he enrolled me or wanted me to enroll in karate to teach me that getting hit didn't hurt that bad. Um, and I did eventually learn that lesson, you know, um, 
getting hit doesn't really hurt that bad, especially when you're in a fight. You might wake up sore the next day, but uh, you know, getting punched in the nose, you know, just doesn't really hurt that bad. Uh, I remember years later, I mean, when I was, uh, I don't know, a teenager, I had to go to the doctor one time and I had to get shots. And I remember I was really scared of getting a shot. I didn't want to get a shot. And uh, my mom was with me and she goes, you know how many times I've seen you get punched in karate? Uh, and this shot is nothing. And something clicked in my mind and I went, yeah, you're right. And they gave me a shot and shots have never bothered me since then. If I have to get blood drawn or a shot or anything, I can barely feel them. They just don't bother me. And it was because of that moment, you know, so um, karate, I guess, did help me in that way. Now, my mom, when uh, we decided that I was going to start taking karate, she went to all these different karate. I'm going to call them dojos. I don't think we called them dojos back then. I didn't hear that until I heard it from movies later. We just had a, you know, we'd call it the karate studio or something like that. But she visited several ones around, and the one that she decided I should go to was called Black Belt Karate Association, which was uh, founded by Jim Buton. And I'll talk later about Jim Buton. But uh, uh, this was, uh, again, this was right around the time of third grade. And we signed up to see how things would go. Uh, Black Belt Karate Association was located on 39th and MacArthur in Oklahoma City, which is now either, I forget which is which, uh, on one side of the corner is CVS and the other is Walgreens. So I forget which one uh, is where Black Belt Karate Association used to be. But the, the strip mall where the karate studio was is long gone, unfortunately. Um, it was advertised as American karate or sometimes uh, we would say it was American taekwondo. But, uh, it, you know, it's probably... Some sort of mixture of that, but uh, Black Belt Karate Association was the actual name. I want to paint a picture of what the studio looked like. And when you walked in the front door, there was a little, uh, I mean, like a, a small lobby, and there were certain things for sale there. They had weapons for sale, like nunchucks and, and throwing stars, even though. I never touched any of those things the whole time I went there and the whole time I took karate. Um, off to the left was Jim's office, which was if you were signing up or had uh, paperwork or something to do, you would go in his office. But then past that lobby was a large waiting room. And this is kind of where uh, – oh, gosh, I said large waiting room. It was probably you know 15 by 15 maybe. But this was where parents sometimes waited uh, while their kids were taking lessons. There was a, a Coke machine. In there that worked off of the honor system, you just put change in and then open it up and would take a drink out. And there was also um, a pinball machine in there that I remember. It was um, a Roy Clark the Entertainer pinball machine. Uh, so there were some chairs, some areas, you know, little places to sit. There were a couple of uh, changing rooms off off of that room. I don't think I ever, I may have went in there for something to use the bathroom, but mostly I avoided the changing rooms. I did not want to go change in front of the kids I took karate with. And I certainly didn't want to go in there and change with other adults. So I always wore my uh, karate gi to class with a t-shirt underneath. And then when we went home, I would take my 
top half of the gi off and just wear my t-shirt. But I, I never, <laughs> I never changed uh, back there in the changing rooms. Uh, but then there was a door that opened into the actual studio or the dojo. It's kind of a rectangular shaped room. The long wall that you faced when you walked in was covered in mirrors, so you could see uh, see yourself as you practiced. Then there, the left hand side was actually the the side of the building that faced the street, and it was all windows that were tinted. And then all along that were benches, and so if parents or kids wanted to come in and sit, they could sit there and watch the class from those benches. Uh, and then on the other side, the right hand side, I suppose, uh, all the way on the other side of the benches was a, uh, a heavy bag that was hanging down. And, uh, there was a little padded bench that sometimes, uh, the instructor sat on. And then there was a styrofoam head, I remember, that was hanging from a string and it went up through a pulley and went over and it was tied off on the wall so you could, um, pull it up to different heights and practice like high kicks. <laughs> and of course, the, the, our favorite trick was to try to talk someone into trying to kick it and then pull the string real hard. <laughs> so the head would go flying up really high. Uh, and then there was a water fountain and I think there was a restroom in the, the far corner as well, but that was pretty much it. Again, um, padded floors, um, mirrors on the wall and that, that was about it. Nothing, uh, really fancy, you know. Now, over the mirrors uh, were a series of belts, karate belts that were hanging up. And I remember very, very clearly when I signed up, uh, there were six belts, white, orange, green, blue, brown, and black. And I remember that uh, that was the goal, to go from white uh, to black. Now, black. there were more belts introduced later, but uh, the way that Black Belt Karate Association originally worked is that you paid by the belt. So uh, my my parents couldn't exactly remember. I asked them, but they said it was somewhere like around $200 or something. But you paid, you know, when you're a white belt and you could take as many classes as you wanted uh, until you got your orange belt. And then once you got your orange belt, you would pay again until you, you got your green belt or whatever. Um, now the, the classes, there were different classes at different times throughout the week and they were set schedules. And again, you could attend as many as you wanted. So I usually attended three classes a week. Um, now every class, uh, again, there were, there were different categories of classes depending on what night you went. Um, some nights were for working on forms. Uh, sometimes they're called katas. Uh, one night would be working on one steps. And then uh, one night would be sparring. And then there was also a kind of a general class, which was, you know, basically for exercise and, and, you know, practicing moves and stuff like that. Now, every class, no matter what it was, whether it was sparring or katas or whatever, all began with about 15, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of uh, exercise. They would lead you through stretches where you stretched your legs out and and did some uh, sit-ups and and push-ups. And and we would do this this exercise I'll never forget where we would lay on our back and, and lift our feet up, you know, and, and someone would count to five. There'd always be some smart aleck that would count really slowly or, or count and then say, Oh, I forgot where, what number was I on? But, uh, uh, we would always, you know, every class started with that stuff. And then you would go into whatever specialized, uh, training was going to be for that class. So the first one I mentioned was kata class. And so if you don't know what a kata or a form is it is a series of moves 
uh, it's almost like a, a dance, uh, but it's very specific set of moves. You're not allowed to change anything. Uh, some katas are hundreds of years old. I think some of them go back thousands of years. Um, the ones that we did, every different type of martial art has their own katas. The ones that we used were adopted from Okinawa karate. Uh, again, Taekwondo is kind of a, a mixing bowl of different types of martial arts. And, and what we did was definitely Americanized kind of conglomerate of martial arts. But um, So the very first kata that we all learned was called Chunji. And so I remember the names. I mean, I did Chunji so many times. Uh, I could do Chunji right now in my living room. And I, you know, this has been 30 years ago. But um, so Chunji was a kata that involves 19 moves. And you start with a low block to the left and then a lunge punch. And then you do a low, you do a 180 turn and do a low block to the right and a lunge punch. And so there's this whole series of moves. And as you're learning these, I mean, this is like traditional style martial arts. Um, as you're learning katas, you're being judged on every possible part of the kata. Um, I mean, when you, you walk onto later, I, I competed, I did some kata uh, competitions. The minute you walk onto the mat, you're being judged. How do you look? How do you address the judges? Um, you know, how's your stance? The minute you step into that very first, you know, you turn to your left and you do the first low block of Chunji. Um, what, what's your stance look like? Is your front knee bent at the right angle? What's your weight distribution while you're in this stance? You should have 70% of your weight on your front leg and 30% on the rear leg. Which way are your toes facing? Which way are your feet facing? Um, is your hand, is your punch or your block at the exact level that it should be? So it's very, very, very specific. And you could watch people do Chunji over and over and watch all different people do it. And because the moves are the same every time, you can judge, uh, you know, someone's style. And so, uh, but that was Kata class where you would go and, and um, you would just learn, you know, go through the moves over and over until you had memorized them. And, and performing katas was something you had to do uh, to advance in belt. So uh, that was uh, uh, part, you know, just one part of the training that you had to do. Then there were what we called one steps. And we would do a whole night where people would do one steps. And what one steps were was learning a defense against a single attack. So... Uh, we had over in the corner, we had some different things. And one of the things we had was this big pile of rubber knives. And so we would do a one step against a rubber knife. So the guy would, you know, you, you would pair up and get a pair and the other person, one person got the knife. And for example, you would hold the knife to the other person's throat and they would say, okay, this is a one step. Uh, and, and what is the defense for defending against you know, the knife. And so we would learn two or three things. Uh, one was if you just uh, move your hands really quickly and you hit the back. So with, uh, with, if, um, if the other person's right-handed with your left hand, you would smack the back of their, of their hand 
and on the right hand, you would hit their wrist, and that causes their, their hand to turn at a 45-degree angle, and when you turn, you lo- your fingers loosen, and the knife would go flying out of their hand, which, of course, was a big thing that we would all try to do is see how far you could knock the, the rubber knife out of someone's hand. Um, but we would do these over and over and over. So they would say, okay, this is a knife to the throat defense. And then you would say, this is a knife to the chest defense. And so they would teach you the defense. Like it's always this hand slap. It's always uh, an inside out block, you know. Now over time, uh, one steps would become two steps and two steps would become three steps. So for example, a guy is coming at you or he's holding a knife at your chest, right? So the one step defense was you would do a block. And then the second step would be you would elbow him in the face. <laughs> and then the third step was you would do a takedown. So that would complete that little section. So you would do these over and over. Now, um, as you got more advanced later on, they started allowing you to have a little bit of freedom in the the choices. So they would teach you multiple ways uh, to do, you know, different defenses, right? So if a guy's holding a a knife, um, you know, hitting his hand with both hands is one way, but also hitting it with a, uh, you know, an outside end block and turning your throat away and then punching him in the back of the head, that's also a possibility. So um, as you learn them, you you were able to do a little bit more expression a little bit of freedom of, of how you would do these. But the goal of these things, which I didn't understand at the time, but the goal of these things was to build up muscle memory. So every time that guy, you know, and, and I'm using the, the knife attack as a defense, but every single thing, you know, a front kick. And when you do the front kick, move out of the way, counter to the face, take him down, um, you know, or, you know, drop to the ground, kick him in the crotch, do whatever, you know? So, but you would do it over to the point where it was like reflexes. And that was, you know, when you're in a fight, you can't think about what's going on. You have to have done the training to the point where these things are reflexes. And so that's what we were doing, even if I didn't understand that at the time. And I should say that one steps were essentially non-contact, right? So um, if someone was holding the knife to you and you did a block and then punch him in the stomach, you would really just pretend to punch him in the stomach, you know, but you, you kind of had to sell it in the class. But, but this is not like, like sparring or fighting. This is just learning those moves, repetition, doing them over and over and over. Uh, and then there was sparring class where you did hit other people. Now we were in the junior class. You had to wear um, hand pads, like hand gear and foot gear. And if you were in the younger class, you also had to wear headgear. Um, in addition to that, you also had to wear a mouthpiece and you had to wear a cup and some kids actually that bought their own stuff had to, um, didn't have to, but they, they wore shin protectors and forearm guards. Now I I never had those. I didn't, I didn't think that was necessary. I really hated wearing, I never owned my own headgear and they had a bunch of spare ones laid around and they all sucked. They were all like, and, and the worst was if you had to borrow someone else's headgear and you put it on and it was all sweaty from them, oh, I hated that. But, uh, you know, when you're a kid, that's what you had to do. So the way that uh, sparring worked for us and in most tournaments was, um, well, sometimes when we did it in class, it would be one point for any strike. So a, a punch, a kick, whatever. Uh, but 
in a lot of tournaments, it would be two points for a kick, one for a punch. So usually if it was one point for everything, you would, you would spar to three or five, um, save for kicks, you know, or I mean, save for, um, uh, if it was two points for kicks, you'd still go to um, five. So you're trying to get to, to five points. Now, your target area was uh, the groin, the whole torso area, and the back of the head. So if you hit somebody in the face, that was face contact and you lost a point or the other person got a point if you hit them in the face. Um, also, you could lose a point or they could gain a point for excessive contact. So... The goal of this was not to try to kill the other person. It was a scoring type game. Now, that being said, uh, I saw a lot of judges later on where if you tap somebody on the back of the head or you, you know, got a glancing blow on their, on their gear or something, they would not give you a point. They wanted to see karate techniques. You know, it was, it was about, this was simulated fighting. And so, um, you know, again, the, the idea wasn't to, you know, try to break someone's arm or something, but, um, but it was to, um, you know, exhibit karate technique. So, um, now in our class, there would usually only be one judge and he would, every time somebody got a point, he would say, break, you would go back and he would, he would announce who got the point and then you would, you know, continue or whatever. Uh, in tournaments, most times uh, there were three judges and they would stand, you know, one in each corner and then one right in the middle. Uh, and then they would, you know, every time there was a, a lot of times with kids, it's not like, oh, I got this great punch in. It would just be this weird clash where you run together and he kicks you and you kick him and then they say break. And then the three judges would, def you know, figure out who was first basically, you know? Uh, but that was sparring. I loved sparring. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I was going to talk about this later, but I should talk about this now. Uh, I, I wasn't the most athletic kid in the class. Like I wasn't the, the biggest, I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't anything, but I th always felt like I was one of the, I don't want to say the smartest, but my brain worked really fast and so when we were sparring, it was easy for me to uh, analyze what they were doing really quickly. And so if they, you know, had their hands low, I would immediately go for the back of the head. Or if they raised their hands, I'd go for the torso. Or if they were standing weird, I'd try to sweep their front leg and knock them off balance and do something. But um, so I wasn't, you know, faster or harder kicker or anything like that than most of uh, the kids in my class. But for some reason, my brain just thought faster. It just worked faster, and it just kind of gave me an advantage, you know. Um, so, again, uh, you know, we signed me up for karate, and, and I, I started going, and um, I liked it. I really liked uh, the exercise. I liked doing the one-steps, the forms, and the sparring. Like, I, I liked every uh, – type of class. I didn't love the uh, warm-up exercises, but of course, you know, in retrospect, I see why they would have been important. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention was uh, Jim Buton, when he taught us, and he stressed this in the, the kids' classes, was that uh, anytime there was a fight, there should be four steps that you go through. So this is not uh, sparring in the classroom. This is like a real-world fight. The first thing he always said, and he made us memorize these, the first thing he always said was, if you are like someone wants to fight you, number one, run away. You don't want to risk hurting someone else. You don't want to risk getting hurt. Number one, don't fight somebody. Um, number two, try to talk your way out of it. Say, hey, man, I don't want to fight you. I don't want to, you know, I mean, try to de-escalate the situation. 
And then number three, grab a weapon. He would say, grab a, you know, if there's a baseball bat, if there's a chair, if there's something you can put between you and that person, do it. Um, you know, do whatever it takes to not let this person harm you. Number four, get into your karate stance and defend yourself. I mean, at that point, you've done everything. You tried to get away. Uh, you tried to talk your way out of it. There, there's nothing left. Now you're going to fight and you're going to use karate to defend yourself. And I mean, the goal at that point, it's not for points. It's to stop this person from hurting you. It's to protect yourself and to, and to end it. So, um, you know, that's what I, I took away from that was, you know, in, in conflict, in real world conflict. I, I see some drunk guy at a bar. I don't, I don't want to just go over and pick a fight. I want to get away from him. You know, if they come over to me. I'm going to try and talk my way out of it. If they keep coming on, I'm going to put a bar stool between me and them. I'm going to grab a beer bottle. I'm going to do whatever it takes. If all else fails, then fists are going to fly <laughs> and I'm going to try to end it as fast as I can. Now, trust me. Uh, I am, I am not a fighter. Uh, I mean, not anymore. You know, uh, I, that is the last thing that I want to do. So I'm going to try those first three steps pretty hard before we get to uh, step number four. Um, but again, back to uh, those days, like I said, I was, uh, I found out that I was pretty good at karate. You know, the, um, the katas I found out were, uh, pretty good for concentration, you know, and for perfecting something. I liked that part of it. I liked the part that, uh, you know, it had to be the same every single time. And you only got that through repetition, doing those moves over and over. Uh, again, I liked the one steps, you know, I liked, um, having a little bit of creativity, but you got to the point where when they would say, okay, I'm going to throw a punch, they would throw a punch and, and your arms would almost just know what to do, know how to block that and know how to counter, you know? Um, and then again, uh, the sparring time, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I was, you know, Neo in the matrix, like it wasn't uh, bullet time or anything, but I, I would just watch kids and I would watch, um, watch for tells, you know what I mean? If they started wiggling their foot or, or turning their hips over and over, like the, I knew they were going to throw a kick and then I would just, you know, figure out what I was going to do to, uh, avoid it and, and counter, you know, um, Another big thing about uh, Jim Buton and Black Belt Karate Association is that uh, he was uh, big on respect. You know, when you walk into the dojo, you're there for karate. And uh, I remember one time at the at the beginning of every class, uh, he would say he would say that the Japanese or I don't know if it's Japanese or or Chinese, like Chinji, Chario, and then Kenji, I think. But it, basically, it was. Um, uh, attention and then bow and then dismissed or whatever. But, um, uh, that was the beginning of every class you went in, you bowed to him, uh, before every fight, you bowed to your opponent. It was all about respect. And I remember I have a very specific story, uh, a specific memory where we were standing in class, Jim Buton was talking and I uh, was talking, I think the kid next to me was talking to me and we were kind of giggling or something. And, uh, he called us out. He said, you two right here and pulled us out of the line. I mean, this is a class of 10 people. And then, you know, some adults sitting on the side pulled us out. And he said, uh, I, 10 sit-ups right now. And, uh, 
So we had to do 10 sit-ups. I remember every single person in there was looking at us. I was embarrassed. My face was red. And then on about my third sit-up, I let out a huge fart <laughs> in a silent room uh, with everybody watching us. And then I had to do seven more sit-ups. I've never been more embarrassed. It was just the absolute worst, you know, and um, taught me a lesson. It sure taught me to keep my uh, yap shut when I was standing there at the attention line. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was he was big on, um, on, on discipline, you know, and big on respect. And uh, I certainly uh, – he, he demanded it and he earned it and we gave it. Uh, and um, – also, you know, there was that lesson that my dad wanted me to learn that uh, getting hit didn't hurt that bad. And I would say 99% of the time, he was right. Uh, you know, you would go spar and a guy would kick you and you'd punch and you'd do all this stuff. Or, you know, you'd hold pads and somebody would kick you over and over. It wasn't that bad. You know, it, it just really wasn't. It was, uh, there was so much adrenaline going on during that time that it just, uh, it just wasn't a deal. You know, you got to the point where um, when you're a kid and somebody throws a, a punch towards your face, you flinch, you turn your head, you close your eyes, you do all that. And, and, uh, you learn in karate real quick that if you do that, if you close your eyes, somebody's going to clobber you. So, uh, you, you learn not to do that. It's hard. You know, you learn it over time, but, uh, then you don't, you don't look away. You don't close your, your eyes when somebody's coming at you. You sit there and you look at them and analyze the situation and do what you got to do, you know? So, um, after a while, after taking classes for so long as a white belt, it was time for my orange belt test, which I passed. Uh, I probably had to do Chunji, the form, the kata. I probably had to do some one steps. I don't remember if we uh, had to spar or not as a uh, to get our orange belt. If we did, it was uh, uneventful. I don't remember it. Um, but I do remember after the test, you could either purchase an orange belt from them or you could – there was a way that you could dye your own belts, which was kind of a more traditional thing. You know, there, there's an old uh, – I believe this is true, that old um, ancient uh, uh, practitioners of martial arts all started as white belts. And over time, their belts got dirty and worn out and sweaty to the point where they became black belts. I, You know, that's uh, not really how it works anymore, but – uh, you know, so dyeing your belt was kind of more symbolic as you have the same belt, uh, and it has just, you know, you, you've kept it with you. Uh, so we tried that, and the orange dye that my mom used turned my belt into this weird salmon kind of color, and I wore it about twice. And people were like, "Are you a like pink belt? Like, what are you?" And so um, I begged my mom, and she did pay for me to get. Uh, she bought me uh, an orange belt. Now, around the time I got my orange belt, I started going to tournaments. And um, tournaments were held, of course, all over the country. But uh, locally, they seemed to mostly be held like in churches or high school gyms. And they would tape off different areas uh, for performing katas and for fighting and doing all that kind of stuff. And you would be paired up within your belt range Sometimes it would be like, you know, white, yellow, and orange belts together, uh, green and blue belts together, you know, things like that. And then obviously, uh, you know, you, your age range. Um, I remember, uh, you know, you would go in the morning, you would sign up, 
And then your time to perform might not be for hours. So I just remember sitting around forever with butterflies uh, hanging around. And um, it would normally be, I'm trying to remember if it was one price. It might have been one price and you could compete in as many events as you want. So you could, you know, pay your $20 and only do forms. Or with that same amount, you could do forms and sparring. And so that's what I always did. I always did, uh, uh, you know, both events. For us, that was it. Uh, I mean, it was only katas and then uh, sparring. And that's basically the two uh, two things you could enter. And I remember for katas, um, they would line you up, you know, and then they would say like, um, okay, you know, Rob O'Hara, you know, you're next or whatever. And you would run up and you would say uh, – like you'd run to the middle of the ring and you'd stand there in attention. You'd look at all the judges and I'm trying to remember exactly, but it would something to the effect of, uh, I would say, my name is Robbie O'Hara. Uh, I do, uh, Amer- my style is American karate and I will now perform Chun Chi. And then you'd look at the, the judges and bow and then you would go and, and, um, take a few deep breaths and then you would do your form. Right. And so, um, uh, when you were done with your form, you would, uh, bow and they would say, thank you. And you would leave and they gave you absolutely no feedback. Like they scored your form, but you didn't know, did you do good? Did you do bad? I mean, uh, just absolutely no feedback, uh, until when they would announce the trophies. Right. Um, then there was, uh, the sparring. And so again, they would break you up by age group, grape you up, uh, uh, by uh, belt colors, and then they would uh, sort you by height. So it would be the smallest all the way to the tallest. And the one thing you did not want to do, you didn't want to end up next to your friend. Like I had you know, friends that were in my same class, and we would go. You did not want to stand because you don't want to knock your friend out or have them knock you out, or you know, then your school is out, right? So um, you try to – sometimes there would be the shenanigans where they would say, okay, you're next to him. And then you would slide on the other side, and they're like, nope, you go there, go go back, and you go back, and then they would move. And it was all this, like, sliding around to try and um, not end up, you know, directly uh, next to your buddy. Uh, then I remember they would have – usually they would have, like, a red ribbon or something, and they would uh, tuck it behind your belt. Well, one person, right? So one person's white, one person's red. And so they would they would take the little red ribbon and tuck it behind one of the person's belts. And then um, – uh, again, they would have the, the three judges. And, um, if you hit someone in the face the first time, the other person would get a point. If you did it a second time, you would get disqualified. So they were really big, especially in the younger age groups, no face contact, but again, back of the head, torso and the groin area were all, um, a targets. Um, I thought that headgears were required, but I have some home videos of me and karate tournaments and I'm fighting other kids and they are not wearing uh headgear. So I don't know if that, if I just wanted to, or if that was a thing for my school, I just really, I don't remember. I, I thought it was required. Um, it certainly was required in our classes, but may on tournaments, uh, maybe it wasn't. Uh, and then uh, they were all single elimination, you know, so there wasn't loser brackets and, and, uh, things like that. Not in the tournaments I did. They would just, you know, whittle you down and, until you get to first, second, and third. But it was certainly, um, exciting and scary to be fighting people you didn't know. Like when I sparred in class, it was all my friends and we had a fun time and it was a game and all that. But this was seemed more like real fighting when you're fighting, you know, and hearing adults, you know, cheering for somebody else. 
uh, was just a, a weird feeling, you know. But um, on my very first tournament, I won two trophies. I won third place in kata, and I won third place in sparring. And so, man, I was hooked after that. Like, I just love that feeling. I love the win. Um, I love the whole thing about it. And so the other cool thing was my school had a point system. And so every student in the whole school got, uh, and I don't remember what the point system was, but you got a certain amount of points for going to tournaments, and then you got additional points for first, second, or third place. So they would always have a bulletin board for like, one would be for kids, one would be for um you know, young adults, and then one would be for adults. And they would keep track of whoever the top 10 people were at the school. So you wanted to, you know, definitely compete to try to get your name on that board. So, uh, you know, after orange belt came green belt, and uh, I tested and I got my green belt. Uh, I, I, I remember thinking at that time that uh, I was getting better, like I was getting quicker, my, my katas, my moves were getting crisper. Uh, in fighting, I was getting smarter. I, you know, I was doing a better job. Uh, so, you know, all of it was paying off, you know, just, just going on. I was really enjoying doing all this. And then word got out that I was taking karate. I told people, I told kids on the bus, I told too many people and word got around. And just like I had been warned, all of a sudden, kids started saying that they wanted to fight me or that someone else was going to fight me. And, and, um, I did not take karate because I wanted to fight people. Obviously, you know, I wanted to be able to defend myself, but, uh, picking on someone or starting a fight was never anything that I ever wanted to do. And so there was a kid that lived two houses down from me and his name was Wesley. And, um, by the way, I love Wesley. Like I, I grew up playing with Wesley and, and we were friends and uh, I haven't seen Wesley in, in many years, but, uh, I got nothing against Wesley. He's a good, good kid. Uh, but he was two years younger than me and I didn't have a problem with him at all. But I remember people on the bus started saying, Hey man, Wesley's going to beat you up. <laughs> Wesley is going to fight you. And I was like, why would I fight Wesley? I don't have anything. I don't. I don't dislike Wesley, you know? Um, but I remember one day we, and I think it was like, because if any of the big kids beat me up, it was like, what would that prove? Right. But this was like the one kid and, and Wes and I, I mean, Wes was probably my height, maybe a, a, a little bit shorter, but not significantly shorter. And, um, I think it was the type of thing where they were like, well, anybody can beat up Rob. So we'll just get Wesley to do it. You know? And so I remember one day I got off the bus and all these big kids were like, hey, we want to show you something. Go back this way. So they, I went back behind my next door neighbor's house, which was in between my house and Wesley's house. And so I, I went back there. All the kids were going there. And all of a sudden this kind of circle forms around me. And all of a sudden I find myself standing inside a circle uh, and I'm looking at Wesley. And I I remember specifically saying – I don't want to fight you, but everybody was like, you know, kick his butt, Wesley. Everybody was yelling. And I knew this was that moment, you know, like this was the moment that I had been taking karate for that. My parents had put me in karate. Like this was the thing I was not going to let somebody hurt me, you know, but, um, uh, so I, I came up, well, let me say this. I remember looking for an adult 
because we were behind my next door neighbor's house and next door was Wesley's house. And I thought if I saw an adult, they would break this up and I wouldn't have to fight. And I looked over and I heard this, this voice, a woman's voice say, kick his butt, Wesley. And it was Wesley's mom. And so at that point, I was like, this is happening. This is not like when someone's mom is rooting you on to beat up another kid. I thought this, this is happening, you know? And so I came up with a plan and my plan was to do a spinning heel kick really close to his face. And I thought if I did that, it would scare him and we wouldn't have to fight. So I got into my stance and everybody was laughing and, and, you know, jeering and and cheering Wesley to beat me up. And so right when I begin to spin into the spinning heel kick and I was throwing it at his head, right when I did that, Wesley came towards me. So I, you know, spun around when you do a spinning heel kick, your leg is like a baseball bat. I mean, you're your whole force of your body. You're whipping it around and hitting someone with your heel And I hit him right in the temple of his head with my heel. And he dropped like a wet sack of potatoes. I mean, it wasn't like there was no reaction. When I hit him, he just crumpled. And I stood there and I thought, I just killed a kid. Like, I really thought I just killed somebody. And it got silent And then all of a sudden, he started screaming. He started holding his head and screaming. And then I heard Wesley's mom, and I looked up, and here she came running. And and then the fight broke up. (laughs) The kids ran in every direction. I picked up my school books, and I ran home. I never heard a word about it. I mean, Wesley's mom, I mean, she knew she she was egging on a fight between two kids. Um, I'm sure word got around the neighborhood or whatever. And I went home and I told my parents that my dad basically said, good. I mean, he was like, you know what? You didn't want to fight him. You didn't want to that, but you defended yourself. And that's why you're in karate. And so, man, there was a, a, it was like a life changing event to me. You know what I mean? Where it was that moment where I was like, uh, you know, I don't have to be Bruce Lee. I don't have to be Chuck Norris or, you know, any of these guys. But uh, but I can take care of myself. Like, if these guys come after me or whatever, um, I mean, I didn't think I could win every fight or, you know, any fight between these, these bigger kids or whatever. But I, I wasn't afraid. I just was not afraid of them picking on me anymore. So, uh, but, yeah, I, I, uh, I thought my parents were going to make me quit karate because they told me, you know, if I was going around fighting people, that they would make me quit. And that's what I was most scared of. Um, but they said, no, that's why you're in karate. And and um, nothing was ever said about it to me ever again. So anyway, you know, as a green belt, I, I uh, kept going to tournaments and I kept winning. I started, you know, a small collection of trophies. I mean, I probably had four or five trophies at that time. I, I, again, I wasn't the best, but I wasn't the worst. I didn't have a lot of first place trophies. I, I seemed to end up with a lot of second and third place trophies. Um, like a lot of things, I was better than a lot of kids, but not any of the kids that had natural talent. So any kid that would be like, uh, you know, gifted 
in karate or, you know, super athletic, they would always beat me. But, uh, but like when, if it looked like an even fight, sometimes I would, I would, most of the time, it seems like I would come out on top, you know? Um, this was around the time that we started doing demonstrations. And, and I remember doing two specifically. There may have been more, but, um, one demonstration was at the state fair. There was a, uh, a big stage and different people, bands could rent it or whatever. And you would, you would do, uh, you know, whatever you'd rent the stage an hour at a time. And a bunch of us went from the school and, and, uh, Jim, uh, led this thing. And basically we, we kind of went through a little bit of a practice, but we, we did, uh, Akata. We all did Chunji. So there was like 12 of us all together. We all did Chunji. We took some pads and we did different things where we like kicked on a pad, you know, and then there were two older students, uh, that were brown belts that both, uh, did katas like, like one off kind of things. But, it, you know, this was a thing to get people to sign up for karate. So, you know, it was a demonstration at Expo, but, but we were, we were super fun to, uh, I mean, we were thrilled to do it. And then, um, they did another one that was inside a mall and it was for the opening night of Karate Kid. And so again, it was at this local mall and outside the theater, they had this big, you know, um, little stage area, like a lot of uh, theaters have or uh, malls have, you know, it was right outside the theater. And we did uh, the same thing. We did this demo and, and all of us got karate kid t-shirts and, uh, I got rid of mine a while back. I, I had it. My mom saved it for me and I, I finally got rid of it, but I took some pictures, but it was a, a sleeveless t-shirt and it said karate kid on the front. Um, and then on the back, it had the big bonsai tree. It was really cool. It was kind of a, a tan kind of color. And I, I definitely wore that t-shirt a lot. I, I was, uh, uh, it's funny how, how, as an adult, you're like, wow, I'll give a kid a t-shirt and, and he'll talk about it for 30 years. But it, it really seemed like a big deal, you know? Um, so then, uh, I got my, uh, blue belt and the blue belt was like where stuff started getting serious, you know, like, uh, there were a lot of kids that got to, well, there were a lot of kids that never made it to orange belt. They signed up, they got white belt, they lost interest, whatever. And then there were kids that were orange belt. Found out they weren't good at it, didn't want to do it anymore. They kind of quit. Now, once you were green belt, you were like, okay, well, I, I, you know, I want to, I want to keep doing this. And then when you got blue belt, it was like serious. Like now you had to learn, you know, I think by the time you're blue belt, you'd memorize three or four full length katas. The one steps had all become two or three step process, uh, defense things. And, uh, and the sparring was, uh, you know, not only were, were we more advanced at blue belt, but we were all getting older, you know, and, and, uh, uh, so, so it, everything was getting harder, but, but getting more fun, uh, around this time, black belt karate association started adding new belts. Uh, so remember when I said I signed up, it was white, orange, green, blue, brown, black. Well, they added yellow. So now it was white, yellow, orange, green, blue, and then they added purple. Uh, and then brown, black, and later on they also added red, uh, but I don't think they added red at that point yet. But uh, so I was br I was blue, and I was looking, and I was working on getting towards my um, brown belt, and then all of a sudden they added purple. So now I had to go uh, through purple, which number one I never thought purple was a cool belt to wear. Like I didn't want to be a karate guy walking around in a purple belt, um, but you know, in retrospect. Uh, 
you know, karate is a business. I mean, you know, it is about self-defense. It is about, uh, you know, all these things, discipline and stuff. But it is a business. And so by adding these these extra steps in there, they were able to get, uh, you know, more money from people along the way. Now, it was around the same time that I also got a couple of extra geese. When everybody signs up, everybody gets a white geese, so white pants, a white top. And if you bought them through uh, his store, which he recommended, and I think all of us did, silk screened on the back said Black Belt Karate Association. It had the logo, and then it had a belt that went all the way around it, which um, I loved, man. You know, when I watch Karate Kid and you see all the Cobra Kai and they all have those magic things, that's how I felt. Like, even before Karate Kid, like, I just remember, you know, us, all of us, uh, my classmates going to a tournament and you'd all walk in. And we would all have geese that all said Black Belt Karate Association with that belt on the back. And people knew who we were. You know, people knew we were all together. And um, so I got an all-black gi, so the black top and black pants, which was made of the same material as the first one, kind of, a, you know, cotton. Uh, but then I also got a canvas gi, uh, red top and red pants, and it was made out of canvas. And what it was great for was when you were doing katas because – you know, you're you're not punching or kicking anything real. You're just kicking the air. But you could throw a punch and snap your arm, and that gi would just go whap. Like, you know, it would snap when you threw your arm out there. You threw it really tight, and that canvas material was just really loud. And so um, a lot of times what I would do when I, I went to tournaments is I would wear the red top and black pants. Um, and uh, But I have some pictures of me wearing the red gi with the purple belt, it's just a, <laughs> it's a bad color combo. Uh, but yeah, if you went to a tournament, you know, you want to wear that red top and then you do that stuff and it would really, you know, make your, your punches and kicks sound really crisp. So that was a, a, a trick that we all did. But you didn't want to wear it all the time because it was super hot. Uh, a canvas ski is uh, uh, not a lightweight thing to wear around, you know. And so, um, but uh yeah, so I, I got my uh, uh, purple belt, you know, like I said, uh, and I had my geese and I was still going. And then around this time, you know, this is 1985-ish, you know, uh, I mean, this is uh, my ninja phase is starting, you know, and, and we're watching uh, ninja movies. And uh, what I don't remember a lot of karate movies other than, I mean, obviously there were martial arts movies, but Karate Kid was a big one because we were all in karate. And so we all loved, uh, you know, watching karate kid, but, uh, um, you know, ninja movies was a big thing. Right. And so, uh, I remember like my, I had a friend who was also taking karate and, and I got one of those mini trampolines and we would, he would come over to my house and we would run and jump on the trampoline and practice doing these flying aerial kicks, which, uh, I always thought like I must've looked like a, you know, a, old ninja master doing these kicks. But sometimes we would record them. Like I'd use the, the video recorder and I've seen those tapes and I did not look like a super ninja master. I looked like a doofus, um, you know, just no form, just flopping your legs out there and stuff. But we felt like we were doing really cool aerial moves and kicks and stuff. But I, I don't know that, um, uh, I don't know that it looked as good as we felt like we looked. There's also an interesting picture of me in my bedroom at this time. Uh, it must have been around Christmas or a keyboard. I, I want to say it was probably Christmas of 1985. Now, I am wearing 
my karate gi. So it was probably right before or after practice. Uh, but I'm wearing the karate gi. I'm playing a Yamaha music keyboard that I got for Christmas. And it's on the computer desk where my Commodore computer is. Um, so I, this, this picture to me is interesting because I think when we, when we think back about our childhoods, things we went through, we think about doing one thing at a time. You know, again, I always say, uh, you know, I had the breakdancing phase, the ninja phase, and the skateboarding phase. But the reality is, is those phases all overlap to a certain degree, you know. And so it's it's this is a photo where I can see I'm starting to lose interest in karate. Like I'm wearing my karate stuff, but I'm right by the computer and I'm right by this music keyboard that I wanted to learn how to play, you know. Um, so – as a kid, you just have so many interests, and and after a while, you just kind of decide like, what do you want? I also wanted to play the guitar. You know, I, I asked my mom to sign me up for guitar lessons, so I had all these things that were uh, competing for time. You know, and um, I was still going to, to karate like two to three nights a week, um, and none of my friends, like none of my uh, middle school friends, none of them took karate. So it was just kind of this thing that I did on my own. So if they were doing something Monday night or Wednesday night or Friday night, I was at karate, you know. Now, sometimes if a friend was coming over to spend the night Friday night, I would take them to karate class and then they would just have to sit on the bench and watch me, you know, or sit out there and play pinball or something. And then after that, we would come home. But, you know, it happened happened sometimes, you know, but uh, not not too often. But yeah, it was just this kind of thing that I, I didn't really know, you know, where it was going, like how far I wanted to take karate. And, you know, it was just starting to, to eat up a lot of my time. So I think around that time, I might have started uh, started to lose interest. I also know that by the time I was a purple belt, uh, tournaments were starting to get a lot harder. Like, you know, I was moving up in age, you know, now I'm 13, 14 uh, years old kids are hitting growth spurts. You know, I would fight people and the age range would be like, you know, 13 to 15 or 13 to 16 or something. And I think it's 13 to 15, but regardless, man, I mean, you would look across, go to a tournament and you see some guy that's like a foot taller than you. And it was scary, you know? So, um, I, I just remember the tournament starting to, um, get harder. I remember one time I was a blue belt, I think, and I went to a tournament and I did, um, either Chunji or uh, whatever the first or second kata was, one of those early katas. And the judges, like, got on to me. They were like, you know what? If you're a blue belt, you need to be doing higher skill level stuff. And I was really, you know, embarrassed. But but it was just that thing where where uh, I, I'd moved out. I wasn't a beginner anymore. I was, I was intermediate, you know. Now, I, I want to tell you this story. I, I remember I was on the playground one day uh, at school. This is, like, eighth grade, and we had this – playground area that was uh, paved off and my friends invented this game where they would like I guess they would sneak up behind people and they would either tap you on the shoulder or grab your shoulder to kind of spin you around and when you turn around they would punch you in the belly you know and not hard but you know they would hit you right and um I didn't know about this game I I for some reason, I mean, this might have been the day they invented it, I guess. It could be. Uh, but I didn't know anything about this game. And um, uh, I was out on the playground. 
And um, Jeff, uh, my buddy Jeff that, that I talk about all the time, came up behind me and grabbed me on the shoulder to try to spin me around. And I immediately, as I turn around, I threw my inside arm, I mean the arm that was closest to us, up like an upper block to break that uh, hold. I kind of dropped down to one knee and I punched him right in the solar plexus. And the minute I hit him, I was like, oh my gosh, that's Jeff. And it was that muscle memory. It was years of doing those one steps of someone grabs you on the shoulder. What do you do? You break the hold, you punch him, you take him down, you know. And I stopped before I took him down. But, I mean, it was total reflex, which scared me a little bit. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not trying to make this sound like, you know, I was some Billy Badass that would just, you know, kill somebody by looking at him or something. It wasn't that. But it was just the fact that when he grabbed me, it was instinct to me. It was like spin around, like boom, boom, you know, and before I even knew what happened. And I apologized profusely, and he wasn't hurt, you know. I mean, he shook it off after a minute or two, and he thought it was awesome. I mean, he tells that story to this day. He was like, yeah, man, you, you know, you were at that that point where it was it was becoming reflex, and it really was, you know. I mean, it was three times a week going to class for, for multiple years doing that, you know. And so um, uh, around this time, you know, around the time I turned 15, maybe I was in, maybe I was 15 years old already, uh, I decided to test for my brown belt. Now, the first part of this test, uh, and Jeff actually went to this test. He he went along with me and he, he sat on the sides and watched this test. Uh, the, the first part was you had to perform all the katas we had learned up until that point. You know, so three, I think three katas, maybe four katas. Um, you had to do that. And then you had to sit there and do one steps. And the thing was, which I didn't realize, was that a lot of brown belt and definitely black belt tests are about stamina. So even when I wasn't testing, they would be like, oh, get in here and hold this pad for a guy. And then you would have to hold a pad and just have someone kick you for 10 minutes um, and they're not hurting you, but it just takes it out of you. You know, you're, they're kicking you and knocking you back every time, every time, you know? Uh, and so they're, they're, they're trying to, to get you worn down before it's time, uh, for the big part of your test, which was sparring. Uh, and, and they did every single thing, like for brown belt, every move I had ever learned, you had to go through, do a low block, do a high block, do an inside out block, do a, roundhouse, do it again, do a back kick, you know, it just, you're going through all these, these moves and kicking pads, uh, and kicking in the air and wearing you out. And then it was time for, uh, the sparring. Now I don't know why this was a surprise to me, not the sparring part, but the way the sparring was set up. Either I had not been to a brown belt test, um, or I don't know. I don't know why this was a surprise. But the first part of my test of the sparring, I had to fight four fights, and each one was two minutes long. And for the, the first two were fights against kids that were also testing for brown belt. So that was the minimum, right? So I had to spar these two different kids. And um, a lot of times they didn't break up the fight. I mean, unless you took somebody down on the ground, they would break it up. But but it's kind of just two minutes of just going, you know. So by the, by the end of those first two fights, I was winded, you know. The next two fights were also two minute long each. 
and they were against black belts instructors and they were not going to take it easy on you. So, I mean, they were in there throwing kicks, they were doing stuff, uh, and you were expected to, to fight and defend yourself, you know? Um, and I mean, by the end of that, I was exhausted. And then they said, okay, you have two more fights. And I do remember thinking at the time, like, who else am I going to fight? Like I fought two brown belts and then I fought two black belts. And, and I mean, I was worn out, you know, and then they brought in, uh, you know, like kids from the young, like kids that were testing for blue belt or purple belt, um, who were the same age as me, but you know, just started later or whatever. And I found out that I had to fight two people at a time. Now, this was something I had never done. We had never practiced this. I'd never seen this. I'd never heard of this. Uh, so I was absolutely surprised by this. Uh, and so I was like two people at a time. And then, you know, I was on one side of the ring. The other two were, it was like a triangle. And they said, go. And uh, I kind of remember, like, I found out really quick. If you if two people are going to fight you, they won't both come straight at you. And what happens is they get one on each side of you. And that's a place you don't want to be. So the, the best way to avoid that is to constantly walk backwards. So the whole time you're walking backwards, they're having to follow you, which means they can't surround you. And so I just kept walking backwards, and then I'd stop and throw a kick and kept walking backwards and kind of sneak around the ring and back and forth. And, um, I mean, I – there was plenty of, of fighting that happened, but I didn't get surrounded, which is what I was worried about. And then it was my last fight. Uh, and it was uh, two kids that were roughly, you know, again, my age. One was a little bit bigger. And I, I was doing the same thing. I was walking around backwards. Um, and uh, one of the kids either tripped me or did something. But I was on the edge of the mat which was next to the bench seat where all the adults were sitting. Everybody was watching their kids test. Um, and either he, I don't know, maybe he pushed me. I tripped. I just don't remember. But what happened is I then kind of stumbled and I tripped over someone's feet that was sitting down and I fell kind of onto the crowd, like where people were sitting on this bench. And so I immediately looked backwards because I'm falling and I looked at these people and whoever I landed on immediately pushed me back up. So now I'm fa my face is looking the wrong way, and they have pushed me back into a standing position. And when I turn around, the other kid caught me right in the face with a roundhouse. I mean, not, <laughs> not a fair move. Uh, kicked me right in the face and knocked me out. This is, I believe, the only time in my life where I have been – knocked out. Now I, I talked about this, I think on the episode of the hardest hits I've ever had, but, um, uh, I, when I woke up, one of the judges, one of the adults had his hand in my mouth and I don't know what's going on. I've been knocked out. I just woke up and there's a man and his hand is in my mouth. So I start fighting him and pushing him off. Well, what happened was, is when the guy kicked me, it kicked me hard enough that my mouthpiece flew out. But, you know, the, the guy doing the test or the referee didn't see that. And so when I went down, he immediately ran over to pull my mouthpiece out of my mouth so I wouldn't choke on it. And when he couldn't find it, he thought I was already choking on it. And so he was 
digging his fingers in my mouth to get that mouthpiece. And then someone, I mean, this all happened, you know, very, very quickly, but, uh, someone said, Oh, there's his mouthpiece. And, uh, uh, and, and, you know, I was okay. So this was basically the end of my last fight anyway. And, you know, everybody kind of applauded. I walked off to the side and uh, I guess they decided I, I'd had enough. So, um, uh, I went back out and, and, uh, sat while the, the black belts, uh, I think there was one or maybe two black belts that tested, but, uh, when it was all said and done, I got my brown belt and, um, you know, it was, uh, I, I worked for it, man. I fought for that thing. I, Gave it 100% what I had, you know. And um, shortly after I got my brown belt, though there was multiple things that happened all all in a, a short period of time. But number one, uh, I got my, my driver's permit. So I turned 15 and a half. And all of a sudden, I mean, I was into computers. I wanted to learn how to play guitar. I was into ninjas. I was into skateboarding. I was into arcade games. I was into all these things. And when you threw a car into the mix, I just knew that I wasn't going to stick with karate, you know. Um, but another thing – well, there were two other things. Number one is that I found out that at my dojo, they would not let you test for black belt until you were 18. They did not believe in in kids, you know, being pushed through the system and getting their black belt. So – uh, which I, I understand as an adult, I understand that. But as a kid, uh, it's hard to see that long distance goal of, well, I'm 15 and a half at a brown belt and I'm not going to be able to get my black belt for two and a half years. And so, uh, I kind of lost interest. And right around that time, they added another belt, which was red belt. And I believe they put it between brown and black. And so not only could I not do my black belt, but now I was going to have to work towards another belt before black belt. So I think, you know, some combination of those things, the red belt, the not being able to test for black until I was 18. And then, you know, getting a car, uh, just basically made me, uh, uh, lose interest. Now I do want to tell you, uh, I talked at the very beginning of the show about, uh, Biff, the kid who bullied me. And he was certainly there, uh, when I, fought Wesley and he still loved to pick on me, Biff, not, not Wesley, but, uh, uh, still loved to pick at me. But again, you know, I was at that point where something had changed in me, especially, you know, by the time I was doing this, I was probably a purple belt when this, when this happened. But, uh, uh, I got on the school bus one day I was probably 14 at the time. And, um, my school bus was not crowded. There were enough seats where everybody could sit one person to a seat, you know, and I was sitting in a seat, and Biff came and sat down in my seat right next to me and uh, started kind of, you know, messing with me or whatever. And I remember that then he turned around and gave me a wet willy. He had, you know, stuck his finger in his mouth and stuck it in, in my ear. And the minute he did that, I leaned as far as I could to the left, uh, you know, which would have been against the outside of the bus. So I leaned to the left. And I kicked him as hard as I could in the side. I kicked him right in the ribs and I knocked him basically out of my seat and into the other seat. And the look of fire in his eyes was not like, oh, I respect you now. It was like, I'm going to kill you. And he came after me. I just remember throwing punches and swinging and 
fortunately, it got broke up. I mean, you know, in a matter of seconds. Uh, I'm sure this kid probably could have beat me up pretty bad, but uh, I was just like I said, I wasn't going to take it anymore. And um, this was on the way home from school, and I remember that uh, uh, it was a big deal, you know. And I went home and I told my parents again, and they were like, you know, they were like, good. We're glad you defended yourself. They were not upset with me at all. And um, the next day when I got on the bus, I had to like sit in the front and that kid sat in the back and, and um, you know, kept us apart. And when I got to school, at the beginning of, of uh, school, I got called to the principal's office. And so I went to the principal's office and, of course, Biff was there. And he was either sitting outside the principal's office or, or walking out, something like that. Um, but he had already talked to the principal. And then I went in there and she asked me what happened. And I said, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, this guy's been picking on me since I was five years old. And my parents put me in karate and they told me I don't have to let him pick on me anymore. And he stuck his finger in my ear and I let him have it. And uh I'd, I'd do it again, <laughs> you know, and my parents, I, my, they said, we're going to have to call your parents. I said, I told my parents and they said, good. They said, I don't have to let a kid harass me like that, you know? And, um, she was, and the principal, it was funny. And the principal had actually been my fourth grade teacher. Uh, she had been promoted and taken a job. And so she knew me and she knew I was a good kid. Um, uh, but I was, I was straight up with her. I was like, if he ever did that again, I would do it again. I'm not going to let somebody bully me like that. And she said, okay. And I did not get in trouble or anything. But I do remember that he did get in trouble. He had to go back to the principal's office. And I found out she told me, the principal told me, that he had said that we were just playing and it got out of control. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> we were not playing. He was picking on me, you know. And so he got in trouble, I think, basically. And they knew who was the bully and who was the, uh, you know, he was the kid that, eh, I won't get into it. But I'm sure, like as an adult now, I'm sure you could look at two kids and figure out which one was the troublemaker, and they knew it wasn't me. Like they had to pull me out of, you know, gifted class, whatever I was doing to come down there. Uh, so, you know, whatever. But uh, the point of that story is, is like, like I felt like, you know, even when I had tested for my brown belt and stuff, when I was thinking about quitting, I thought that was why I had gone. I wanted to get to that place where I wasn't afraid of these kids anymore, and I got to that place. I wasn't afraid of them, you know? And so, um, there have been other times, uh, in my adult life, not, I mean, adult life, my twenties and uh, a couple times in my thirties where, you know, I had to stand up to somebody. I mean, where I thought things were going to, there was one, uh, I got into a fight on my 30th birthday, which I'm not proud of, uh, with a guy that was so intoxicated. He didn't know where he was and, uh, kept trying to fight me and, and, um, it, it didn't end well for him. Uh, again, it's not like trying to make – I'm not saying I was a great fighter. It was pretty easy to beat up a drunk guy. I mean, and I didn't beat him up. I got it to the point where he would, he would stop, you know. Um, but, you know, like I said, when I decided that I had kind of had enough of karate, I felt like I had I had learned what I wanted to learn, what I needed to learn, you know, that, that um, I learned the discipline. I learned um, – you know, what my dad always said, that getting hit didn't really hurt that bad. I learned not to be afraid of these people anymore, you know. Um, I, I wrote down a couple of people that I took karate with. I took karate with a guy named Dude Petty who was uh, always top 10 
in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, a very, very, very unfortunately, dude Petty got into some uh, legal trouble later in his life. Dude was three years older than me, so I didn't fight him. Uh, like we were equals. Uh, he taught some of our classes, uh, but I do have a very special home video where uh, uh, I'm I'm at a karate tournament and I won my first fight, but barely. And afterwards, dude Petty and the other guy I'm about to mention start talking to me and telling me like what I need to do better for my fight. So they were definitely a little bit older uh, and uh, kind of mentors. The other guy was uh, a guy named David Cummings who taught a lot of my classes. I saw David Cummings three times a week for many years. Um, uh, I looked up uh, David. His nickname is Thunder, David Thunder Cummings. And there's a uh, about a 30-minute documentary on YouTube if you want to watch it. He uh, had a total record of 179 wins, 54 losses, and three draws. And out of those, uh, he won by knockout 81 times. He was a fighting machine. He loved the fight. He loved the sport. Uh, he held the title of world champion, and I'm not sure. Uh, I know he moved to Muay Thai. He did Muay Thai a lot, but I don't know if this was Muay Thai or with uh, uh, Taekwondo and, and Professional Karate Association. Uh, but he did hold the world title 13 or 14 times. So uh, he he was uh, definitely a very gifted fighter. Um, I, I know that... Uh, uh, in the documentary, he he went to um, Puerto Rico and opened a dojo there, but I believe he's moved back to the States. I think he's living in Oklahoma now, but, uh, uh, yep, he w he was another guy that uh, I took karate with. Now, I remember one time when I was uh, – this was after I'd quit karate, and uh, I was in high school, and I was doing something for school in the library, and I was looking through these books, and I found a book in our library called Who's Who of Martial Arts, and I started flipping through it. And uh, when I got to the bees, there was Jim Buton, the man that I had taken karate from uh, for years. And uh, Jim Buton, it said um, he had won more than uh, 150 awards. That's not just trophies, uh, but different awards. Uh, he was ranked number two in the world by the Professional Karate Association. He was a member of the world uh, U.S. World Taekwondo Championships. Uh, that he participated in. He got a silver medal and he is currently a 10th degree black belt. Now I did read that 10th degree is normally reserved for people who have created their own form of martial arts, but he was uh, bestowed this honor from his master that he learned from. And I found articles where when he was given it, the governor showed up. So it, it was a really big deal. Um, I actually found for my birthday, I found that Jim Buton had written a book it's called Karate Stories from the Blood and Guts Era of Tournament Karate. Uh, it's a very short book. And if you're not uh, a fan of Jim Buton specifically, then you probably would not be interested in reading it. It is mostly about uh, his tournament history uh, from the late 60s and early 70s. But in that time, it was not padded. It was bare-knuckle fighting. it, So there was no hand pads, no foot pads. Uh, he fought with... Um, Bill Superfoot Wallace. He trained Tommy Williams, who went on to be a world champion. He uh, fought with uh, Chuck Norris. It was the same time. This was all in the uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, kind of that Southwest uh, kind of region. And so uh, Jim Buton is, was and is the real deal. I did not realize when I was a kid how lucky and fortunate I was to uh, be taking classes under 
somebody that was uh, so highly revered in the martial arts world. But uh, yeah, Jim Butin. I don't have anything bad to say about Jim Butin. I, I think um, he had just he was really good with kids. He had the right amount of discipline, but also. Uh, uh, you know, kept things fun and, and kept us uh, motivated and and interested. You know, um, so I I quit karate when I was fifteen and a half. I uh, got my brown belt. I walked away from it, and uh, I don't remember exactly when this was. This is probably ninety three, ninety four. Um, I mean, I quit karate in eighty eight or eighty nine. So this has been several years. And I heard that there was a tournament going on uh, in Mustang, which is not far from me, and that it was being sponsored by Black Belt Karate Association. And so uh, I I don't know where I saw this, but I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to go check that out. And so I drove over and uh, walked into this tournament, and I saw Jim Butin there. And uh, I found a a moment where he wasn't busy, and I went over and I introduced myself and – he asked me how I was. He asked me how my parents were. And uh, I said, you know, I came out here and I'm kind of, I was kind of thinking about restarting. Like I'm kind of interested in this. And he said, oh, he would love to have me and that they have an uh, adult beginners class and that I would have to start over as a white belt. But, uh, you know, it would be a good thing. And I kind of nodded and I walked away and I was just crushed by that. Like I, I don't know why I thought that I would retain my brown belt, you know, like, um, maybe you have to retest for Brown or something, but it had been, uh, maybe even longer than that. I, you know, I mean, I might've been, well, gosh, if it was, I mean, I might've been 20, 21, something like that. So it had been a long time and obviously a long time for a guy that teaches kids every week. I'd been out of his life for five or six years, you know, but, uh, I don't know why I thought I would go back in as a, as a Brown belt. I certainly hadn't practiced karate in five or six years. And the thought of starting over as a white belt, I, it was too much for me. I was like, no, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. So that uh, that was the end of it, of uh, karate for me. Um, you know, I uh, get my kicks, uh, no pun intended, through karate games and movies, and, and uh, occasionally talking about the good old days like tonight. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I never uh, went back into anything. Now I, I actually. When my son was young, we signed him up for a karate class, and it was if you signed up, you got the first month for free. And I don't, I don't think he made it for the first month. It just was not his deal. He did not have any interest in it. He didn't like it. Um, he certainly didn't want to fight with anybody or have anybody fight him. Uh, and and so that was it. I think he might have went for a week or two weeks. Um, now, I do have a nephew who is taking martial arts, and I don't remember what the specific – it was a, some sort of martial arts I've never heard of, and he just got his green belt. And so I was talking with him about that, and he said he has to do uh, forms, and he does kind of like one steps like what I used to do. And I said, well, you know, do you like the sparring? And um, he said, no, they don't They don't spar. They don't, they don't hit each other. And I was like, what? <laughs> And he said, "Yeah, they don't they don't do any contact stuff. I mean, they kick pads and things like that, but they in his school they don't spar anymore." And um you know, I don't know if that's a I mean, I'm sure there's still karate uh for kids where they spar and do all that, but I I think, you know, uh I I went um I'm I'm kind of venturing off on another story, but uh, I went to the uh oh, I don't remember what it was. Uh Mason was born, but he was young. So I was probably 30, 
And it was uh, when I went to go get my uh, uh, CPAP. And I uh, went to the uh, CPAP doctor, uh, respiratory doctor, whatever, and, and he uh, was looking at my nose because I told him that uh, sometimes I have trouble breathing out of one side of my nose. And he, he stuck his little scope up there and did all that. And he said, hey, well, so when did you break your nose? And I said, oh, I've, I've never broken my nose. And he goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, you have. And uh, I was like, no, nah, I mean, I don't think so. And he's looking at it. He's like, yeah, this this is not lined up here. And um, said, you you took a shot to the nose at some point, and, and maybe it didn't bleed. Maybe it didn't do something. But, uh, yeah, this is all out of whack. And and um, I, I can only imagine that it happened in karate. I mean, there was no other time where I was, you know, getting – taking hits to the face <laughs> other than karate uh, playing Atari was pretty much non-contact sport. So, uh, I don't, I don't know when it was. I don't, I don't know that it was when I got knocked out that time. I don't know when it happened, but, uh, uh, apparently, uh, apparently I broke my nose. So, um, anyway, just so I, that liability of, of seeing kids fighting, kicking each other in the head, Maybe that's not a thing anymore. I really don't know. Uh, I, I have to think that there's kids sparring that still happens today, you know. But uh, I thought it was a little sad. Um, and, and it's not that I'm not proud of my nephew. I'm certainly proud that he's he's getting good exercise and he, and hopefully he's learning, um, you know, defense stuff like I learned. And, and those one steps will help him someday. But, uh, yeah, I always thought like a, I mean, a big part of what I did was the sparring and just to get you used to that, 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 feeling of not being afraid of some guy across, you know, coming at you. And, uh, so I, I don't know that, uh, that he'll, he'll have that, that same experience, uh, or get that same feeling, uh, walking away. Uh, but that's, uh, that's it for me and karate, man. This is a long one. I'm sorry for rambling on so long, but, uh, uh, I'll just say, uh, if you have any feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me at Rob O'Hare at Rob Enjoy the conversation over on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore or leave me a message on my podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. Uh, be sure to go check out podcast.robohara.com. That's where all my podcasts are. And uh, thanks to the Amigos for letting me team up with them uh, throw Sprite Castle on their RSS feed. I, I appreciate those guys. So. Uh, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again in two weeks. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're members of the Black Belt Karate Association here from Oklahoma City, and uh, we're going to come out today and give you a demonstration and some martial arts technique. We've got our junior demo team with us today, and they're going to show you some of the things that they've developed in karate. I think probably now almost everybody has had some contact with karate training, either through martial arts movies, magazines, a relative in the family maybe that got into uh, the training a little bit. And uh, we're real proud of the accomplishments that a lot of our kids have had. We're going to tell you a little bit more about them the more we're into the demonstration today. Well, we worked up some things we think you'll enjoy. We'd like to show you a little bit about it, maybe answer some questions that you have about karate and about the training involved, what it can or what it can't do things about the self-confidence factors, the self-discipline involvement, and obviously the physical fitness and the activity of just being involved in the martial arts. What we're going to work with today will be involving several different areas in karate training, and as we find most people have different attitudes or desires or goals in terms of getting into karate, and we like to give you some of these diversified attitudes and show you that there is more than just one thing uh, to martial arts training. 
Obviously, the self-defense factor is big, and we work primarily on that to show power and strength and all the techniques we apply. But we do get into the aesthetic side of karate as well, dealing with forms and katas. The very first kata that we're going to be working with today is uh, one that our uh, demo group has worked together, and uh, we're going to show you a little bit about that. Steve. Robbie O'Hara. Melissa Hill. Okay, the next one they're going to be throwing is a turning back kick where they're hitting with the rear foot. They're spinning and hitting, trying to hit in with that heel the same way. In fact, you may notice one of our uh, top black belt students, Tommy Williams, is the PK, or was, the PK World Light Welterweight Champion, the only full-contact karate champion from Oklahoma. He recently, I'd say recently March or April of this year, had lost his world title. He's going to be fighting again. We're going to have a card at the Myriad, November the 10th. Tommy will be on that card trying to work on uh, regaining that title. This won't be a title fight, but he is uh, trying to take a couple of short-level fights and come back and get a shot at that world title again. I hope you'll be able to see it. It'll be November 10th at the Myriad. with now is try to get into some self-defense techniques and these will be involving some of the weapons that uh, uh, may be applied from time to time. Uh, normally you don't want a problem with anybody and uh, that's normally our philosophy is if you can avoid a confrontation, avoid it. If you can get out of there, get out. But there are times where maybe you just can't get out. The door's locked. You threw a chair through the window to try to get away but there are iron bars on the other side. You're stuck with this guy and he's intent on doing something to you with a knife or a pipe. Okay, there's a little demonstration for you in some of the things that you might want to do against a weapon problem. Generally, I always tell anybody if uh, somebody pulls a knife on me, I uh, should pull a 357 out of my boot. <laughs> Be a better deal. But the problem is, you know, uh, you might not always have it. And sometimes in uh, demonstrations like this, people will say, you know, what are you going to do if a guy has a 357? He's got it aimed at you. I'll say nothing. Give me my billfold, whatever it takes. But if a guy, if I ask that guy, I say, well, have you got that 357 with you? He says, no, it's in my truck. So you'll never make it. <laughs> you won't get it in time. It's only effective if you have it with you. And the problem that, uh, that, uh, that we usually face is, we never have a problem when we expect it. And it's always at one of those times when you really didn't think anything was going to happen. And it's obvious when you pick up a newspaper nowadays and you read about people getting stabbed, shot, beat up, raped, something is happening every day. And it's obviously becoming more of a concern. And especially it's a good representative when we can have some kids up here that can show you uh, some things that they're already working on and that uh, they can continue working with that and develop their self-confidence, their self-discipline, and hopefully, even though we're growing up in a violent society, maybe this will be one group that won't be affected by that problem. And we'd like to invite everybody, too, that's out here today to uh, visit our booth in the Maiden, Oklahoma building. We're out there. We'll be there all through the duration of the fair. We uh, would like to have you come by our studio, 5917 Northwest 39th Expressway. It's right off MacArthur and 39th. Like Haley, come out and visit our classes, observe them, take a free trial lesson with us. There's no charge for a session for you.